All right. Um, welcome, everyone, to the next episode of the Courage to Lead interview series. Um, today, uh, I've got someone with me today that's actually uh, a long-term family relative of the Sicard family. Um, his name is Len Sicard. I call him Uncle Len. Um, now, I'll just give a bit of history here. Len um, is just about to have his 100th birthday in, in December. Uh, Len is with me. He can't see any reason why anyone would want to listen to his story. <laughs> um, uh, and he's very, really reluctant to be here. Uh, but when you start to unravel um, his story, uh, I think everyone will appreciate why, why, why he is here on the program. I, you know, I firmly believe that leadership occurs at all levels. You don't have to be the, the commander of a submarine. You don't have to be the CEO of a football club. Um, leadership starts at a family level. And that's Len's story today. So welcome to the program. Len, Uncle Len, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Okay, thank you for agreeing to be part of the program. So um, let's get straight into it, Len. Uh, do you want to tell me um, uh, where, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Wellington, New South Wales, which is a, quite a small town. Uh, the next uh, early part of my life was spent in Geary. Geary is a little township midway between Wellington, New South Wales and Dubbo in the western New South Wales. So, so as I said, I spent about uh, three quarters or a quarter of my life at Geary 25 years, about the first 25 years of my life was spent there. So, of course, I started school uh, at Geary, Geary Public or Primary School. I would have attended there from about 1929 to 1934. Um, my parents, Tom Seacard and Lucy Seacard, they had a property which adjoined the school. So uh, I didn't have to take any uh, play lunch or lunch uh, to school because our property was right just across the street and that's where I spent uh, that time. So let's um, just look a little, little bit at, um, at what happened in Geary. Um, your, you said your dad's name was Tom um, and his, uh, his dad was, I think, Henry, Henry Sicard? Yeah, Henri, uh, yes. Henri, so Hon yeah. And that, this is where, um, like I've always been told this, um, um, that Sicard comes from, is a, is a French name. So you just said Henri. So Hon Henri Sicard, what's his story? Do you know anything much about him? No, we don't know. I don't know hardly anything about him. He just came out from France and he was... Uh, I know he loved fishing because uh, he lived uh, or Dripstone, which was in near, near Wellington, New South Wales. And uh, that was his... I think that was his main 
life was fishing. Actually, he was drowned in the Macquarie River uh, and uh, they never knew sort of where he ended up and eventually they found uh, an old... Down near Warren in the river, they found uh, the remains of a, a belt made out of possum skin or something and uh, they said, well, that's where Henry finished up, was in the Macquarie River down near Warren. And I don't know much about him other than uh, that, that he was keen fisherman, lived uh, in the vicinity of what is now Dripstone. Yeah, okay. that, that's all I know about him. It's interesting because um, um, the Sicard name, if you go to somewhere like Canada, De Sicard's like Smith. Um, from what my dad told me, so um, you've kind of put your. I never. I, I'm glad, just from the, our family's point of view. Uh, like I never knew the history about Henri Sicard. So thank you for that. But your dad, um, Tom, um, didn't he run? Uh, I think the the butcher shop um, in Geary. Yeah, my my dad, Tom. He and his brother Sylvester, they worked. In the in the butcher shop, they owned the butcher shop and worked there. Uh, my dad Tom, he did most of the the book work. He used to spend a lot of time because nobody ever paid any money for anything. They pop used to write it down what the people bought. You know, a pound of sausages, a loaf of bread, and then at the end of the month you'd have to make out a bill for everybody. Showed what they bought and what they paid for. And sometimes they, they got paid and mostly they didn't, didn't get paid for yeah, the stuff. Yeah. yeah. So um, Sil, he used to do the, oh, the outside part mainly, um, like getting the cat. They had their own slaughter yard and um, Sylvester used to have to sort of arrange buying the cattle and, and uh, then... Um, the slaughtering, they used to slaughter the... had their own slaughter yard and um, they'd kill their own beasts and then cart it down to the butcher shop and store it overnight. Um, did it, and then next day they'd put it in the, in the cool room. Yeah, so, so Pop used to run a, a cutting cart, they called it. It loaded up with bread and he'd go down to the... Shop early, wee early hours of the morning, perhaps about four o'clock, and start loading all the meat and that in the back of the truck. Yeah. Uh, and then it visits several properties around a little village called Maryvale, and um, probably go to 20, 25 different properties. This is all. This is all on a horse and cart. No, I think originally it may have been in horse and cart, but that's I don't remember that. Uh, oh, what I remember is in a vehicle, an old Chev Chev truck. I okay, think. yeah. Uh, I remember it had solid rubber tyres on it; didn't have tubes in it like they do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so go to these different properties, and then you'd see what the people wanted, and then. <clears throat> you'd cut the, the meat up, you know, he'd put, might have or half a lamb or something, that type of big hunks of meat in the back of the cart and whatever the people want, he'd just cut, cut it off and give it to them. 
Uh, that's why they call it a cutting cart, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they had a separate compartment in the truck for the bread. So he used to visit, as I said, about 20, 25 properties. And uh, nearly all these properties had gates, of course. And of a weekend, um, sad days, I'd go with him uh, mainly to open the gates. Yeah. Uh, and eventually uh, he might get out and open a gate and I'd drive through. So that's where I really learned to drive, I used to have. And um, eventually, later on, uh, when he came to the last property and we're ready to go home, it, I'd take over and I'd... I'd drive home about oh, seven miles or something uh, from Maryvale to Geary. I'd drive home. How old were you then? So th- I would have been, I think, about 11 or 12, I think. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I, I used to think when I was 10, but I think I might have been a bit. I know I was that small, I couldn't see over the steering wheel. I'd have a look, look through the steering wheel, the spokes in the steering wheel. <laughs> Sounds, yeah. sounds um, I think you just hinted there, uh, there's a couple of things I want to go back to there. Um, I think you hinted at that you had bread in the cutting truck as well. Um, is it, uh, I think, before we started the interview today, and this is uh, uh, things I don't know about, um, about uh, the family life, um, you said that you, your dad ran a butcher shop and a bakery shop. Yes. Okay, so it was the bakery shop. Yeah, the, ba- the bakery shop... Uh, was on the on the same prop. There were two separate shops: the butcher shop and the baker shop. Uh, and they employed a, a chap by the name of Jim Paxton, so he used to make the bread. Uh, the bread was very good. It, it's sort of uh, used to all be handmade. You have to punch, knead the dough with, with your hands, no machines, yeah. that sort of thing, and. Uh, Yes, yeah, so Jimmy Paxton was was the baker. So they made their own bread, and it was very, very, very good bread. People used to come at the weekend. People had come from Dubbo, Wellington, just to get the. Used to every Sunday afternoon, they'd put out a big batch of bread. It smelled so beautiful, and the, as I say, people used to come wow. eighteen miles just to, to get a, a fresh loaf of bread on Sunday yeah. afternoon. And that, and in like. Nowadays, that trip can take only about 20 minutes. Um, oh. But in those days, that trip would have taken how long? Oh, well over half an hour. Yeah, well over half an hour. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to talk about, because um, you said your, your dad um, would go and get the meat from the slaughtering yard and the slaughtering yard wasn't near the butcher shop. Um, like We're talking about the 19... 19- 20s, aren't we? 1930s, 19... Yes, 1930s, 19, yes, so, 20s, 30s. So was there, was, there, was there power at the butcher shop? Was there like a, a big refrigerated cool room? How, yes, how it... a, yes, a cool room. Yeah, they had to, had to have a, a separate motor, a separate sort of shelter shed outside the butcher, butcher shop. And, uh, yeah, it ran on a... On a a motor that that cooled the, the cool room. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, and the cutting uh, the cutting truck did it have a fridge on it? 
No, oh no. <laughs> okay. No, on the on the cutting cart when you go around Maryvale and that, um, they have to break a branch off a gum tree or something, eucalyptus tree, and and I'd stand there with the with the the, the branch and keep the flies away. You know, <laughs> have to have the the back of the cutting truck open, of course, to get access to the meat, and of course the flies had. Uh, like they penetrate, so yeah. So it, uh, I was there busy with a <laughs> with, with a bush to keep the flies away. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Sounds totally amazing. Um, so you said you lived close to the school. So uh... just referring back to the the slaughtering. Yep. Jack Clothier, which my, one of my mothers or my mother's one of her brothers, Jack Clothier, he was the butcher. He used to do the slaughtering as well as my brother, my brother Ron, okay. used to do the slaughtering also. And they'd put the body, when they'd, after they'd killed it and bisected it, they'd put it in the back of a, a horse and wagon and put a sheet over it and take it from the slaughter yard uh, down to the butcher shop was about two mile. That's... What they did a couple about twice a week. They used okay. Wow. Wow. Well, well. um, and ultimately, the how I know about that butcher shop was my dad ended up owning that butcher shop with uh, him, him and his dad Harry. That's right. Owned the butcher shop that's for a right. while. That's right. Harry yeah. and Ron. Yes. Yeah. Took and, uh, over the butcher shop. And anyone, I, I don't think it's um open anymore, but that that butcher shop's still there, and it used to turn into an antique store for a while, but I don't think it's operating at all anymore, is it? Or, I don't, think, yeah, it's, don't yeah. think it's operating anymore yeah, now. Yeah, it used to be the best antique store for, for hundreds of kilometres around. Um, all right, so let's... Uh, I've, I've, your uh, family's been very kind to just give me some little prompts here for you. Um, I believe in uh, early in the piece, you actually went to the same school as your... Your future wife is that right? Yeah, going going right back before that, my mother, my darling mother Lucy, she went attended the the Geary School also. She would have been there in the late eighteen nineties. My darling mother would have attended the Geary Primary School, and uh, of course, Ron and Joy and I we all uh, attended the same school. Yeah, so tell me about. Um like I distinctly remember when I first laid eyes on my future wife. Um, tell me about, uh, like you just said her name, Joyce, Joy, um, at school. Tell me um, how, how you met at school and, and, what, and how did this mm. relationship happen? Well, Joyce um, Reynolds was a girl who attended the uh, Geary Primary School, the same time as I did. Oh, she was a couple of years younger than I. Um, so, well, I met her when we went to primary school. That's where we first met. Uh, and then after that, when we finished at, um, at the primary school of about 1929 to 1934, we started to go to school at Dubbo then. So, we attended the Dubbo High School and, uh, well, I got to meet her every day, sort of. We used to both hop on the train at Geary. every yep. Yeah. And we'd go to Dubbo every day uh, on, the, on the train. 
And so I used to see her every day and that's where we met uh, in our early teams, teens. So I was keeping company with Joyce from very early age uh, till <laughs> right up to when we became very serious with our friendship and uh, we just remained friends all, all the way through right till the... Till we became husband and wife, sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. So I know there's a story there. So yeah. um, uh, I'll I'll kind of take you back to that a little bit. So you you go to um, you go to uh, business college. Of, um, I hear. So after what what time did you leave? At what age uh, were you? What kind of year um, did you leave high school in Dubbo? Yeah. Well, I right, started to go to high school in Dubbo, uh, or I did anyway, in 1935. Yeah. Attended uh, high school from 35 to 1939. I uh, got as far as uh, <clears throat> fourth year and then decided... Uh, I used to go to the coast every year with the uncle and he said, why don't you... Used to go fishing up the north coast some every year. Yeah. He said, "Why don't you, you know, get a job on the railway?" Because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So he said, "So he said, why don't you, you know, learn shorthand typing or something?" So that's what I did. I left left the high school in about uh, nineteen thirty nine and and started the business college in Dubbo to learn shorthand and typing. And bookkeeping, I didn't continue <laughs> with the bookkeeping, mm. but I kept on with the shorthand typing. And then I, when I became um, proficient, or thought I did, in um, shorthand typing, I applied for a job on the railway, and I got a, a job on the railway in the resident engineer's office as a junior clerk in, in 1940. That's when I started work on the railway. So that's uh, about the end of that. Uh, where was that at? Was, where was your junior that, clerks? The, the uh, Dubbo got a job on the, uh, in the railway at, at Dubbo in the, as I said, the resident engineer's office, uh, junior clerk. Okay. And is that, um, is that uh, did something start happening around that time with Joyce again? Ah, uh, nothing, no, nothing. I'm just going steadily with Joycey. She used to work <clears throat> on the telephone exchange at, at Geary and uh, I used to, uh, when she's at work, I used to ring her up and our phone out at home used to be on the wall and we're standing there for hours just with a, holding the receiver in my ear and waiting for for her to become vacant between calls, <laughs> she'd she'd have to put calls through. And so when she'd finished sort of work of uh, of an evening, I'd perhaps go and meet her, and and we'd walk home together. She used to live on the uh, on the other uh, other side of the hill at at Geary. We we're on one side of the hill, and she lived on the other. I used to walk, go over to the post office, and walk her home of a night, and then I'd walk back home over the hill 
So we, we were very good friends for a very, very long time. From early teens right to, to the end, Joyce and I were very friendly. Good on you. Good on you. Uh, your marriage, I mean, I'll, we'll get to where, that, where it does turn into marriage, but you, 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 were, you were with your best friend for life. Yes. Yeah, which is was wonderful. Um, and I've got here that, so you're in, Dub, in Dubbo, in Geary, living in Geary, but uh, the junior clerk uh, at the engineer's office in Dubbo. And, and then in, like, we're talking 1940, April 1940, so this is while all the World War II is all happening. And then you get called up to the Australian Defence Force in 1943, is what I've heard. So... At I think you're at age twenty. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, do you want to talk about what, what, what? Do you want to talk through that process, like us, uh, people like myself and and our listeners to this program wouldn't understand what, um, like your Lensica, twenty years old in a country, a, a small country town, what's called up mean and what happens then? Oh, apparently, uh, it's like a raffle. I think they. To people get called up when they reach a certain age. Apparently, they uh, they get called up. I don't know how they select their names or whatever, but that's what happens. And I got a a couple of call ups previous to 1943, I think. And the engineer in charge, he said, no, you know, didn't want me to be released. At that time, they're building a railway line between Maryvale and Sandy Hollow and that was sort of mainly the reason for that line I think was to be for defence purposes for trains could you know carry troop across that anyway that railway line never really uh, eventuated I mean it didn't never ever got finished never but that's one of the reasons why I said I wouldn't so after another call up, you decided I could go. So, so I went down <coughs> to Sydney and signed up. And they asked you there whether you want to be um, in the air, in the air part or ground crew, whatever. And I said I wanted to wanted to be in the air, air, air aircraft part of it. So. So uh, they shipped us off then down to Tokemore and uh, with rookie, 2RD, Rookies Depot they called it. So on the way down to Tokemore, I, I tried to learn the Morse code. I remember that. I don't know how much of it I learnt, but I remember that. And then we got, we had to spend a few months down at uh, Tokemore, Rookies Depot, then we came back to Bradfield Park and uh, that was uh, embarkation, did a bit more training there. And, and, and what's that, what's the um, embarkation you call it? What's, um, what kind of training are you doing then? You know, what, what... Oh, you're learning um, aircraft recognition and that sort of thing. Still continuing with mainly weight. Didn't do too much at back back at Bradfield Park. They they called it two ITS initial training school. Just more or less waiting there for 
embarkation, I okay. think. Yeah. yeah. So embarkation is what? Is that well, when, when you when you, when you hop on a ship and go somewhere? Yeah. Okay. So what what um, what? How, I've got here that uh, Empire Training Scheme trained in Canada, um, NASA, Bahamas. So do you want to talk about what embarkation looks like? Yeah, well, <clears throat> when the... Uh, Joyce, Joyce was at uh, working in Sydney at that time. Um, she transferred from the Geary Postal Exchange down to Hunters Hill uh, and she was... Uh, Doing the same the same work at Hunters Hill, so that's that's where she was, and I used to go and visit her at Hunters Hill when I was at Bradfield Park, and uh, so we uh, in about March or so in in nineteen forty three we embarked. We got on a um, American ship, USS Mount Vernon, and we left uh, Sydney and we went across to uh, San Francisco um, underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, of course, and then we went then across to Oakland and then we went up the west coast of the United States, up to Vancouver, British Columbia and Canada, then we hopped on a train there. Uh, I remember it was a big, long train and had beautiful carrier, Pullman coaches, I think they call them. Went across Canada through British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, and, and we went to Winnipeg, Manitoba, where we uh, started a what it's a a wireless, Winnipeg Wireless School, it was called. Mm. Uh, and we studied um, mainly, Morse, mainly Morse code and that sort of thing, aircraft recognition and that sort of thing. And he did a course there for a few months and then they gave us mid-course leave and we were able to go wherever we wanted to with our mid-course leave. We went down through uh, Minneapolis, St Paul, down to Chicago. I, I spent Christmas 1943 and my 20, what, my 21st birthday in Chicago. Wow. Uh, very cold there it was. I remember they using a fire hose and... Uh, the water froze before it got to the fire. It was yeah. okay. And, uh, yes, yeah, so I had a good time there. I used to go out at night and sleep all day, I think. And... <laughs> Nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, we, all, we all enjoy yeah. playing when we're 21. <laughs> and some people was, um, asked me to <clears throat> go to their place for Christmas, which, which I did, which is very good. Yeah, so then after that we went back to Winnipeg and finished the second half of our uh, wireless course there. Um, and then after that we went across to back to Lethbridge in Alberta and did a, a gunnery course there. Um, 
with the gunnery, we did gunnery on the ground and, and in the air. Uh, in the air part of the training, we'd be in one aircraft and then there'd be another aircraft flying alongside, trailing a drogue behind them, and we'd have to shoot at the at the drogue. Um, we'd, each of us air gunners, there might be, I don't know how many in the plane, two or three, four, and we'd have our turn sh- <coughs> shooting and our bullets would be have uh, different coloured tips on them or something, and uh, when you, if you hit the, this drogue that the plane was trailing, it'd show the, what colour, okay. uh, what coloured boots. So you'd have to be a bit careful you didn't hit the plane instead of the drogue <laughs> that it was trailing. Did that happen? <laughs> no. no the, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so when the, the, the gunnery course finished at Lethbridge, Alberta, then they shipped us back to... Uh, a camp at uh, near Montreal. It's, it's got a name. I just forget the name at the moment. Can I just? I, I, I really don't want to interrupt the the flow of this. But um, do you want to discuss? Like you said, you were a, an air gunner, um, and my anyone that's seen an old world any World War Two uh, footage of of uh, airplanes with guns in them. There's gunners on the side of the plane, on the bottom of the plane, on the top of the plane, and at the back of the plane. Where where was your position on the plane? <clears throat> My position as in gunner, when when you form a crew, um, you take over all the positions. Had a wireless operator, a raid, radar operator, and and the gunners, and. Uh, <clears throat> You probably train in all those positions, but when you actually get onto a squadron, um, they allot you to a certain position. And my position uh, was a rear gunner, so I, I was a rear gunner in uh, Halifax. All right, so I've, I've really interrupted you, but you've kind of clarified that. So you were, you've left your gunnery course, and then when do you go then? Yeah, I went back to, as I said... Uh, a camp in Montreal, and we stayed there for a while, and then they shipped us off. Went down through America again, down through Miami, Florida, and then by boat across to Nassau in the Bahamas. <clears throat> and that's where we uh, we did another course there at Nassau, and formed a formed a, a crew there. You know, they had the pilot, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, uh, navigator, bomber aimer, uh, radar operator, wireless operator, and two gunners, upper gunner and a rear gunner. So that's where we uh, did some more training there. Yeah. And from there we went back and um, I'm not sure, I can't remember clearly where we stayed between we, Nassau Bahamas, we come back to through America uh, and then we, we left from Halifax in, in Canada, went there on another ship, uh, Ile de France was the name of it, we went from there to England. Uh, I can't remember where we landed in England. Mm. And we went down to Brighton, a reception depot, 
at Brighton, which um, was one of the... We stayed there in a beautiful hotel on the waterfront at Brighton for a while. And then they, we were sent on to um, Northern Ireland, Aldergrove in Northern Ireland. We did a, another course there. Like When we were in Nassau, Bahamas, we trained on Mitchell's aeroplanes. And when we went up to um, Northern Ireland, we had to do a, a conversion course HC heavy convert HCU a heavy conversion unit on the Halifaxes. So we we then trained on the Halifaxes, and uh, when we finished there, we uh, the next stop was at uh, Stornoway in the Outer Hebrides, and that's where we uh, that's where our our operational um, squadron was, and we operated from. Stornoway and Hebrides, and we flew over uh, at night on, on the Halifaxes over the Skagrak, which is between Norway, Denway, Denmark and Sweden. That's where... Uh, and uh, we used to... Uh, the radar operator, he'd be... It was an all-night flying. Uh, he, he'd be looking out for thingos showing up on, on his uh, radar, and when he'd spot something, he'd tell the skipper where it was, and then we'd... Sort of try and hover in over it, and they'd drop a flare or something. They'd fly around and take the wind, something, and then the bomb aimer would take over, and they'd, you know, he'd tell the skipper the where to go, and then he'd we'd see something, and they'd drop the bombs, the bombs away, and then we'd hightail it home and hope we could get home all right there, which we usually did, fortunately. And now once we got bit short of fuel we had to stop in Inverness on the way home. It's in northern Scotland and had to refuel there. But otherwise we escaped safely from when it was all over. Was there ever any hairy moments where where the the opposition found you? Yeah, yeah. some sometimes the people we were trying to drop a bomb on, they'd have uh, objections and, <laughs> and they would start uh, sending up flak uh, yeah. at, at us. And yeah. it was very, I remember the flak was very, very, very pretty, very pretty, yeah. Got a few little holes around the, the, the back where I was situated. They patched them up and ready for the next trip, yeah. And do you want to tell us, um, like... What's it like? Like you said, how cold it was in America, but um, like you're in, you said Norway. Swoop, your, your area of operation was Skalifax or Skag. What was it? Skagerrak. Skagerrak yeah. between Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, and you're flying at night, all night. I couldn't imagine it was very warm. Um, no. So what's 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 Lensicard at twenty one, twenty two? What's he wearing up there, and how do you survive in that um, in that environment for all night? Because you and if you can describe, are you lying down as a rear gunner, or are you sitting up? Or what's, oh, it, what's it look like? No, when you're in in the rear gunner, you're sitting up, and uh, it's not a very big space. <laughs> I mean, if if you're supposed to take a parachute with you and that sort of thing, but there's not room to. To stick a parachute on your back is too confined space. 
if anything happened, you had to get out and get your parachute and put it on. I don't, I don't know how you'd do that. But anyway, unfortunately, yeah. But it was very cold. Uh, of course, you used to wear a, a, a cap sort of thing with, my fingers that earmuffs on things on. A very sheepskin jacket, yeah. Um, pants, my pants were nothing special, I don't think. But used a big, uh, big, ug, you know, ugg boot type of thing, uh, nearly come up to your knee. These things are all sheep skin, sheep lined with, yeah, lined with sheep skin, whatever. So, um, yeah, that's the sheep skin was <laughs> kept you nice, and the jackets and 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 your long boots were mainly what kept you warm. Okay. So, um, do you want to talk us through, like, is, uh, if you, uh, any of, like, myself and any of the listeners just can't imagine what this is like, um, this, this time of your life. So, a normal day, what's a, what's a let's, let's break it down, what's, what's a normal day, what time does it start and what time does it finish when you're doing a mission over Skagarak? What times it start and what times it finish? Yeah, how 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 do you how do you prepare yourself for that? And then, and then how soon do you go back again? Yeah, well, I'm not real clear on the times of the day how <laughs> I spent the day in in Stornoway sort of thing. Um, to get ready, I think you'd have to go um, down to the have to have make sure you had a, a good meal, I suppose. So you have to go down on mid-afternoon, I suppose, and, and you'd have a, a briefing. They tell you vaguely where you were going and what you were, what you're going to do, and that sort of thing. Um, times of the day, I don't know. I know. I used to spend a lot of time during the day. Um, or down the recreation part of the building, you know, you'd have your, your mess where you have your meals and you'd have a place where you could play table tennis or something like that in your spare time. And then if you if you knew you were going on a trip, they'd probably have to prepare you, I don't know, about five, six o'clock in the, in the afternoon, that sort of thing. And as I say, they'd do your briefing... And then you'd go out and uh, I suppose it'd be about six or seven or eight o'clock in the evening or something like that. You'd go and you'd board the aircraft and then you'd be out for oh, up, up to about eight or ten hours you'd be out and when you come back you'd get debriefed and then you'd go and, and then you'd go back to your hut and uh, you'd, you'd have a rest then, and I suppose you'd, you'd rest then till you felt you had to get up, and you'd hope you might go back for another meal there during the day. I wouldn't know what meal it would be, but after you could sleep in, a, I think, almost a, quite a long time. Mm. Um, yeah. So how, how, um, 
how many times in a row do you get up and go the next night again? And no, how- oh, no, you'd, ha- you'd have, uh, you'd have a, at least a, a couple of uh, two or three, prop two or three nights or days before you went on your next next trip. Okay. Yeah. And how many trips, as you call it, how many trips do you think you made? Uh, can you remember how many trips you made? No, I, I actually can't. It wasn't a lot. What like was, by the by the time we finished training, the training took a, a long time. Training took most of the time I was in the Air Force. It was spent training. Yeah. It was terrible lot of training. Mm-hmm. And so it was right getting towards the end of the war mm-hmm. when when we actually started in the operations. So I only got a handful of trips in. I actually don't know how many. was was not, not many. It okay. was a handful sort of thing. Well, it's pretty impressive. Um, like I, I know in, in police work and like the, uh, I suppose, the, dre- the adrenaline, the, the anxiety, um, you know, what was it like for you to go up in that, Every day, and how'd you deal with that? That anxiety, I suppose. Yeah, well, it was an anxious time, all right, but uh, I don't know. I just dealt with it the best best way you could. There's, uh, yeah, it was. Uh... Well, so one thing I know about you. And I just want to probably take you there. Um, like uh, one thing that uh, that amazes me, and then we'll, we'll share about it in the interview, and it might even come out now. Is you're one of the fittest men I've ever met, and you and you still even up until this day, you still do a, a huge fitness routine every day. Um, so when you were in the air force back then, um, and you were you were doing all those missions and all that, was there you know was there a level of training that you started then? Where where, where does the where's the fitness regime that I know you do? To this day, where does that start? Oh well, I don't know. Back in those days, I used to try and keep fit as I could. I, I didn't do any specific type of exercises that I can recall. Um, I know one time in when they're doing wireless school at Winnipeg, um, they wanted to, anybody want to volunteer for different sorts of activities. Um, you wanted to do boxing or that sort of thing. So I, I volunteered. To, I thought they were going to teach you boxing. And that's what I thought it would be. But actually it was to, <laughs> to take part in boxing. And uh, I was a bit sorry I signed on for that, but I did. <laughs> and uh, I got a bit, a bit of a hiding. But anyway, we decided if we got any money from it, uh, would take go down to the mess and uh, would drink it, drink, drink mm. whatever. <laughs> so that's what happened. I finished up with a few bruises. Yeah, but uh, I was um, I was a bit of a silly bugger in those days. In some ways, after we'd go for a, a route march or something like in training, I'd come back and have a cold shower. I'd be the only silly person that do this, I'd come back and have a cold shower and it was blizzardly cold. Yeah. I don't know why I did that, but but I used to just try and keep fit. Um, 
that that was during the, the time away. Nothing else um, to keep fit. Well, when I on on the railway when we come to Sydney, when I come to Sydney to work, uh, I used to run at lunchtime. I used to used to sort of go for a run at lunchtime. We only had about three quarters of an hour, but by the time we went for a run and had a shower, you know, the lunch hour soon went. Um, and one of the chaps at work got me to um, have a game of squash. This when I was working in the row at Chalura. And so uh, I couldn't hit, I used to miss the ball more than hit it. Anyway, I got a bit, then I used to play squash for about, I don't know, about 30 years I think I started, played squash. So I got a bit fit there. <laughs> And uh, I think uh, I might just interject there. Uh, <laughs> this is why I know you, how fit you are. Like, um, like you, this must be. I, I remember I played you at squash when you were in your seventies. So I don't know how old I was then. Um, so thirty, I would have been in my thirties myself. Um, and you and I wasn't a bad squash player, but you towed me up, absolutely towed me up, and just grinned at me. And you weren't even puffing, and I was, um, I was exhausted. So. So you were a very, that's my first uh, introduction to how fit you were um, and how, and just how energetic you were. So, so you, you played the squash, you obviously, um, uh, and we're going to get into Joyce in a minute, you played a lot of tennis. Um, do you want to, um, do you want to talk about, uh, like, I, I think you, it might, you recently came to my mum's 90th birthday and you talked to my wife um, that, at that party about your exercise regime every day do you want to talk us through that what what that is like you're now 99 years old um and and um anyone that looks at you wouldn't think that anyone listening to you wouldn't think that um do you want to tell us what your routine is before before you get out of bed and then once you get out of bed (laughs) (coughs) yeah well go through it i try to exercise every morning um my, my problem is i go to bed too late i start watching telly of an evening about six o'clock and I watched till midnight and that's it. So comes morning, I find it very, very difficult <laughs> to, to get up. But I, I won't get up until I start my exercises. So what I do is first is I start little uh, little sit-ups, not, not fair dinkum ones, just a little bit. And then after I do... A few of those. Yeah, tell us the numbers because the numbers oh, are huge. Oh. <laughs> well, I do about 50 um, just pretending sit-ups then. That's just to, to warm up. So then after that, I do 50 pro- proper sit-ups. I'm just still still in bed, mind you, and I put the pillar down down the bottom over my feet. Otherwise, my feet start sticking up all. So, yeah, after, after I do... 50 sit-ups, I sort of, still on my back in bed, uh, like a a bike, you know, like doing a bicycle, what you do on a bike, pedalling a bike, I don't know what I do between those, no specific number, only between two or or three hundred of those bicycle actions, That's, that's about all, then I just sit up and fling my arms around in all directions, up and down, sideways and 
And then I start looking around with my head to the left and right as far as I can. Okay, so it's time to get up, which is not very early. <laughs> my, my life time in bed as I think I spend, I don't know, I think I spend as much time in bed as I do out, out of bed. So then I hop up and I start, I do uh, about 50 pretending push-ups just on my knees. And then. So after that I do a bit what you call planking and I sort of plank for, oh, count up to about 100 slowly, plank. And then I start my push-ups. Um, the number varies. I start off, uh, I try and I do about 25 to start with, and then I do um, another, say, 10, I get up to about 40, and then I say, oh, I'll do another. So I finish up doing about 50 push-ups, just not all at once. And that, that's, that's about, so that's my regular Exercise. I try to do that every morning. Sometimes I don't feel much like doing it, but I, I, that's why I sleep in so late because I'm tired and I, from being up so late the previous night, and I won't let myself get up till I do exercise. If I could get up easy about some ungodly hour, perhaps like I did this morning, about eight o'clock, <laughs> it's out of my time zone getting up at that time. So that, that's my exercise. And then I um, sort of try and play bowls three days a week and I'm always weeding. I'm up the backyard weeding, weeding, weeding. That's about, that's about my life. Playing bowls <laughs> and weeding, that, that's about it. <laughs> so let's clarify, you're still playing bowls three times a week at yeah. 99 years of age? Yeah, three bowls, yeah. Play pennant bowls and... Uh, they make me skip. In a bowling team, you have lead, second, third and skipper. And they, for some reason or other, they put me skipper all the time. I don't take a rope to, when I skip. but they... <laughs> <laughs> You're a wonderful guy, Len. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you for kind of sharing that. And I'm sure I'm gobsmacked. I don't get out of bed and do 50 push-ups in the morning before I get going. So um, it's, a, it's a lesson to all of us about how how to stay mobile, how to stay healthy and how to stay, um, uh, to live your life to the fullest. So thank you so much for sharing that, Dan. So let's, um, let's kind of, let's just go back to your story around, um, around Joyce. So this is, so Joyce is your, is your, the lady that you spend your whole, you end up married, but there's a great story behind Joyce. So do you, um, I'll let you tell it. Uh, there's something along the lines of um, who proposes to who first and, and how, does it, how, does it, how does it all go? Tell us the story, Lynn. It's a great story. <clears throat> when we, after the war, when we come back and, and resumed, uh, I resumed work back as a relief clerk at the Dubbo Railway, um, I operated uh, between Dubbo, Parks and Bathurst uh, as a relief clerk. I, when I finished at Parks uh, of a weekend, I'd go down on the train uh, to Orange and I'd hop off there and I'd find a railway carriage somewhere in the Orange railway yard and I'd spend the night there waiting for the Western Mail to come through 
in the wee hour, early hours of Saturday morning and I'd hope I could hop on that train at Orange and travel back to Geary and I'd spend, spend the weekend uh, in Geary. And um, on the Monday morning, I'd hop on the train to Geary and go to Dubbo, Narromine, and across to Parks, if I was relieving at Parks at the time. And then uh, that's, that happened. Uh, that's, uh, so <clears throat> at this time, I was working in Dubbo, um, Parks and Bathurst, and Joycey had moved to Sydney, that's my my future wife, Joyce. Uh, she was moved to Sydney before before I went away overseas. Before I went away in um, nineteen forty three, Joyce had moved to uh, Sydney. She was working on the telephone exchange at Hunters Hill, and and that's that's where she was. So I was in Dubbo, and she was in Hunters Hill. So we didn't see very, uh, each other very, very often, but I used to go down occasionally to Sydney um, and I'd visit her. And uh, one of these occasions, um, she said, you know, could we get married or whatever? And, um, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I said, well, I, I said, I've got no money. Uh, I've got no nowhere to live, and I said I, I can't see any future in us getting married at this time. So I said, "Sorry, no, no can do." So uh, eventually, um, whilst this was, I didn't go down to Sydney very often. I, I don't think I can't remember clearly, but on one occasion, um, she came up to Geary. Um, for a weekend, and um, we used to um, have some dances there. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, so we sort of got got together again. In this meantime, um, you know, when I would not uh, accept her <laughs> proposal, total, she she uh, decided. Uh, she had another friend down there and, and they became engaged. So um, things were getting a bit serious there. So as I say, when she came up to a dance, um, we sort of decided we'd sort of give it, give it a go. I might try and try, just try and give it a go, see if we could get together and um, even though we had no prospect of anywhere to live, so she uh, terminated, I think, her engagement with the chap to whom she was engaged. So uh, we, I went back and... So let's, let's just rewind this a little bit, uh, Uncle yeah. Len. Yeah. Um, so she's engaged to a man that's proposed to her in Sydney. Yes, yeah, yeah. She's come to visit you at a dance in Geary. Geary, yeah. And um, how did you talk her out of being engaged? What happened? <laughs> what was the conversation? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Apparently she liked me and uh, <laughs> and was prepared to break her engagement. Apparently I, I didn't didn't encourage her to break her engagement. But I think well, you know, if you so desire, we'll try and give it a go, even though we have no no future or anywhere to live. 
So that, that's, yes, that's she decided. So on another occasion, I went to, down to Sydney to see her and on one of our visits going from Circular Quay across to Woolwich, I think was the wire, uh, where the boat took us to. I proposed to her and um, she accepted, so um, eventually got went and selected a ring and... Uh, in a very, very short time after we uh, we became, uh, we decided that, to get married and uh, and and we did and and we lived with uh, her parents uh, for a while. We had nowhere nowhere else to uh, to go to live, um, and this some old railway fetler at Dubbo. Um, he he was retiring, and his his house came up for sale. So um, my darling mum and my dad uh, loaned me five hundred pound to to buy this house in Dubbo. So I I bought an old fetless house in Dubbo for five hundred pound, and uh, as I say, I had to borrow the money from my mum and dad because I didn't have anything. Mm. So. Uh, we started yes. off and... So when was this? What, um, when were you married, Len? We were married in 1947, 1947, and we lived uh, in this house in Dubbo for 10 years. Um, 1958, we left Dubbo and uh, we bought, put our chooks and, and, and lamb. We had two... Two pet lambs. We went out one day. We used to go out of a weekend, and uh, the shepherd was taking his sheep along the long paddock. They they call it um, when there's no food around. The, the the shepherds and the, they had to take their sheep along the roads to get something to eat. And the lambs um, were coming out. The, the sheep were lambing at the time, and the lambs were dropping everywhere. Um, so um, they picked up as many as lambs as they could. The drove with his horse and sulky. He'd load his sulky up with as many lambs as he could carry, but they couldn't carry too many, so he'd leave them on. So on one of our trips, we picked up two two lambs, um, one for Lorraine, our daughter, and one for Susan, our other daughter, and um, brought them home in the boot of the car, and uh, one wasn't too well, and Susan said to Lorraine, yours is the, the dead one. <laughs> one wasn't very well. So when we, when we left, so we had to look after these lambs, it fed them in the backyard in Dubbo. So when we, when we shifted from Dubbo to sit, as I say, we had to bring the chooks and the lambs from Dubbo down to uh, the family, like uh, Joycey and um, the girls, they stayed in Geary while I come down to to Sydney in January nineteen what was nineteen fifty eight I think yeah so we had to bring the lambs and the chooks down to Geary and, and they left them at Geary <laughs> and I come to Sydney yeah so so that's that's the, the story of the lambs so where did you um where did you live. In Sydney, when you came, yeah. To so my darling sister, who also was Joyce, who had two Joyces, uh, she lived in uh, in Rockdale. Rockdale. 
So I stayed with her <coughs> from uh, January, um, 50, what, 58, 59, 58, I think, 1958. I stayed with her um, for about a few months, yeah, a few months, and then in April, 58, I think it was about April, the family, Joyce and the kids, they come down from Geary to here. Yes, I've been here since 1958 in this nine green acre. Yeah, my darling sister Joyce was, like in my job as Dubbo, the railway, to get promotion you had to move around. So I went over and had a look at Tamworth but decided not to go to Tamworth. So then an offer came up, uh, a job at Chalora, which is the railway workshops here. So I asked my darling sister, would she look around for accommodation for me? So she did, and she chose this place now. Um, she saw an estate agent up at Lake Kemba, and, uh, yeah, so he decided this little place would do us. So that's what happened. I came here in... Um, I, yeah, so I lived with my darling sister from Rockdale from yeah, January to about April 1958. Okay. Wow. And then you've been here ever since with your family and everything, um, and it's still immaculate. I'm like, I'm, that's, we're interviewing uh, Uncle Len today in the kitchen at their, uh, their house in, in Greenacre, and it's immaculate. It's totally immaculate. So... Um, it's such a good... Do you want to talk a little bit about what you and Joyce um, got up to? Uh, like, uh, you, what what did you... Because I've, I've heard you're great... Like, you've talked about it already, dances, tennis, and I've heard there's a fair um, bowls career as well. Do you want to... Yeah, well, Joyce, um, one of the reasons I left Dubbo was because I was involved in... In the bowling club, they become too involved, actually. Um, the bowling club was formed uh, in about 1952. It started off as nothing. Uh, they had nothing. They had to build their own bowling green. They didn't have a clubhouse. I brought an old railway siding in from some railway station that was not used anymore. So that was the first clubhouse and some old gentleman donated a poker machine, I think two poker machines, a sixpenny one and a shilling poker machine. That's the only source of income they had at the bowling club. So I become started bowling there uh, after um, we sort of constructed our own bowling club. 1952, and I did... Pretty well there. I think I won the the singles the first year, and uh, they had about four events. I did pretty well. So um, previous that, like um, when I come to Sydney, I, I gave bowls away altogether for fourteen years, uh, uh, from nineteen fifty eight to uh, to nineteen sixty six to the early seventies. And then in early 1972, I rejoined Bowles with a Bankstown RSL in about early 70s. And, uh, and then I transferred to the bowling club at Greenacre 
in uh, oh, the mid 70s, 1975, something like that. Right, and I was becoming involved in bowls again. So Joyce, my darling wife, decided she'd better take up bowls also. So she did. She became a bowler with another friend, and that friend she became. But we become friends, and we used to travel around together. And we used to go on trips, or went to New Zealand, Tasmania, around Australia, almost around Australia. We ne- never did over the um, the northwest corner, Kimberley's. Never did that. We did all the rest. Yeah, so um, so Joycey took up bowls and, as I said, and become very friendly with a, about six couples who we travelled around with for years. Uh, what happened then? In Dubbo, in Dubbo Joycey, um, we played tennis together. We played at the Dubbo Rower Institute uh, Tennis Club uh, we 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 won the mixed doubles there together one year. That was at tennis, and uh, then she she when <coughs> she joined bowls at Greenacre. You can't uh, beat them, join them, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So she became quite quite a good quite a good bowler. She's got a a cabinet here full of trophies and that sort of thing. She become yeah quite quite a good bowler. So um, so we had fun together playing tennis and bowls and, uh, yeah. That. Lovely, lovely. Um, so how long, uh, how long were you married to Joyce? We were married to Joycey. We were, would have been when she passed away, very near 65 years, I, was, I guess about from when, from 1947 till uh, 10 years ago, what was that, 1912? Yeah, yeah. I think I'll have to work that out. 2012, yeah, yeah. I think That's, right. That's 65 years, I think, it is, yeah, yeah. It is. Well, how does, um, like, I, I think, without trying to cause any, I don't know, grief or anything, how have you, like, all of us have to come to a time and we don't want to come to that time where we lose... Our most precious partner. How have you? How have you made life kind of um, livable? I suppose, um, and because you're still thriving, like anyone that knows you, you're still thriving. How, how have you done that? How, what what piece of advice would you give us youngins um, on how to deal with grief? I suppose. How how have you done it? Well, it's hard for it's a hard for a while to. Uh... To get over the grieving, or don't think you ever get over it, but um, well, you just have to try and remember the good times you had, and uh, yeah, well, I don't, I don't know how you do it. You just um, do the best you can. It's it's difficult. Mm. You say, oh, how long does it take you to get over this sort of thing? It's, uh, well, you never really get over it, but you you cope with it and. Yeah. I don't know how, but you just think, you of, as I say, think of the good times you had and try and remember all the good times you had there. I've, had, I've got some notes here that your, um, your daughter Lorraine has prepared for me and it's one of them is um, 
a good role, you, you're like a massive role model for our family. So you've, 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 taught, you've touched on it briefly with the lambs. Um, you've got two daughters, Lorraine and Susan. Um, what kind of family, what's the extended family from them and, and what's that mean to you? And what do you mean to them? Yeah, well, uh, I've always tried to help my girls when they were going to school and that sort of thing. I tried to help them with their homework and um, till they got to a certain stage they got beyond me. <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't help them anymore. That happens to all of us. I tried to teach them the right thing, you know, to be, be honest and that sort of thing and do the best they could and, yeah. So how many grandkids have you got? Grandkids. I only have two grandkids. Sue never married. She mm-hmm. she had friends and boyfriends and become more or less engaged and had a glory box and all those sort of things, but never went on with it. Lorraine um, married, of course, Malcolm, Malcolm Dowse, and um, they had two children, um, Jodie uh, and uh, and Stephen. So I have two two grandchildren mm. and um how old the, are they um then there's um Jody had two okay two two girls yeah. um Brianna who was very soon be 21 very wow. soon wow and uh, Nikki who was um, I think she's a couple of years younger uh, nine, 19, I think. Yeah. Two, two grandchildren from mm. Lorraine. And Stephen, he has three children. He has a girl, uh, Kez, Kez for short. Uh, she's, um, I think she's 20. She's just got a, a licence, uh, L plate for her car, so she must be about, about 16. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, Luke, he's, I think he's 14 or 13 or 14. And then there's Abby, um, she's a couple of years younger, I'm not quite sure, you know, she's about 10 or something like that. So, yeah. so I've got five great-grandchildren. Great wow, yeah, wow. five great-grandchildren, wow. yeah. And one of the things I love, um, and this is why I was so keen to do this interview with you, every every, um, every person I've interviewed on the Courage to Lead interview series talks so affectionately about um, the impact a elder person in their family had on them, like their grandfather normally. So I, I don't think you could ever underestimate what your story and what your influence is on those five great grandchildren and the, and the, and your grandchildren. So um, I really thank you for being so, I don't know, sharing um, uh, with with that part of your life. So we're not almost there to the to the end of this um, interview, and it's been I, I could go on for another couple of another hour at least, but I'm I'm conscious um, of time a little bit. Um, I've got in here from in the notes that you also ran the city to surf. Um, a number of times. How many times did you run that? Oh, yeah, three times, I think. Susie and I uh, used to uh, train 
quite hard, you know. We'd 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 go out and try and stay out there for an hour and a half or something like that, and go all around the, the district, try and do a a different route so uh, you didn't get tired of the one track. Yeah, so we went in. Uh, I think three city to surf, Susan okay. and I. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How old would you have been then? <sighs> when was an anniversary? Nineteen eighty-eight, would it be? Nineteen? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Around that time, though, in the eight, uh, late eighties, nineties. Then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, That's yeah. pretty good. I, I've done the city to surf, but I never, I never. I, I never was dedicated enough to do multiple trainings of an hour and a half. <laughs> well, I might do the, that towards the end, but not, not all the time. So I can see where your fitness comes from. Um, let's, close, let's close the interview with... Uh, I just love... Um, like you're 99 years old, um, and, and a lot of the time um, uh, people of your generation... Stop learning, I suppose you could say. So uh, before the interview today, you rang me yesterday and said you'd uh, you listened to, already listened to a couple of the podcasts from the Courage to Lead interview series. Um, so it just blew me away that you... And then you quite often ring me uh, on your Apple iPhone and send me photos from your phone, iPhone because uh, you're, you're current with how to do that. Um, but one of the stories uh, that, I, that I see in... Um, in our elders um, is that they lose tolerance for for change and tolerance for people that are different to them. So you live in the in the in the heart of Greenacre, like I've worked here in Greenacre, um, and it, it is probably one of the most multicultural suburbs in Sydney. I think uh, even 15 years ago there was 200 nationalities in in Bankstown um, and in in the surround. So you're surrounded by a multicultural mix. Um, do you want to tell me how they, you're regaled here and they, they look after you and protect you? Uh, protect you might be the wrong word, but um, they, they do regale you. Do you want to tell me about your neighbours and, and how they look after you? Yeah, well, I have wonderful neighbours. Uh, I have on either side of me, on, on one side, I have George... And Al Anna, they they're Greek, um, and they've built their house there like it was an old weatherboard fibro place, the same as this is or was, and they've gone upstairs there, and they're beautiful, marvelous people. Um, he George mows my lawn. I've got quite a lot of lawn, a lot of weeds, and George looks after my lawn. He refuses to accept any payment for it and uh, Anna occasionally gives me uh, some food. Um, they're marvellous, kind, generous people. On the other side of me, I have Lebanese family. Um, they're just absolutely beautiful people. Um, they've got a, a family of five um, Mum Najwa, she's um she's just six sixty sixty one. Um she'd just been to Lebanon um for a month, six weeks. They 
provide me with food. Every evening she supplies me with a meal. Five o'clock every evening, you can set your clock by it. Um, she, they refuse to accept any anything for it, of course, in the way of compensation. Um, they treat me as one of their families. She, uh, she apparently likes me for some reason <laughs> or other. So I have the best neighbours you could ever expect to find. That's uh, so I got Greek on one side who does my lawn, etc. And all my as put down lights in. I my lighting wasn't too good. I tried to get a light put in my dining room, and they come and put down lights in in all my rooms. Uh, wouldn't accept anything for it. This is George. He's an electrician next door. So I've got two of the best neighbours you could ever, ever wish to have. Uh, that's, um, that's, that's, that's about it. That's yeah. truly beautiful. When, um, I think we are at the... I, I just... Uh, I'll, I, and I, I can guarantee you that the people will be enthralled by your story. So let's, um, let's wind it up now. Uh, and I, let me ask you this. And you're, you're, you've lived... You are living a beautiful life and you're loved by your family, you're loved by your community, you're loved by your bowls club, like you're still skipping um, skipper for your, for your bowls teams and that's, that is a very responsible position. What advice would you give us young ones, us younger, younger ones, um, on how to live life yeah, and, and enjoy it? <laughs> oh dear, that's... Uh... I'm not very, very good at this type of thing, giving <laughs> advice to anybody, I don't think. Uh, just try and uh, be happy, do do the best you can. I'll tell, I, I, I get, I, you're, you're such a humble guy. So let's do it another way. Let's ask the question another way. How have you lived your life? Don't give advice. Um, how how have you lived your life to 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 where you're at now? Um, and I don't pick up any kind of regrets. Um, how have you lived your life? What's what's the what are three things that you've focused on to enjoy and maintain a healthy, active life? Oh, to maintain a happy and healthy life. Well. I think the first thing to do is try and try and uh, eat health, healthy food. I think is is pretty important. I think healthy food, yeah. Not not um, drink too much or not to do anything in excess. Exercise, I'm pretty sure exercise is is very a very uh, good thing to do. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not a, a talker or an orator. Uh, I don't. Unfortunately, I I don't read. I don't read much. Uh, all right. <laughs> uh, I. Uh, do nothing in excess. I, I was a home brewer of beer for 30 years. Um, I don't drink now. 
We used to go on holidays every year up the coast somewhere uh, and I used to try to drink and, and uh, eat too much and I'd come home and I'd have to try and take off weight. I'd get, get on, put on two or three kilos. So I think you've got to eat, eat healthily, exercise. There's not too many other things I could do. Uh, okay. So recommend. when you say you eat, um, eat healthily, what's, what's a normal meal when Len Sickard says he eats healthily? What's it look like? Well, for morning for brekkie, I have cereal and fruit every morning. That's the first thing. I get up so late, usually, quite often, <laughs> I don't have lunch because my so-called brunch is, is too late. I might not have my brunch till 11 o'clock or nearly 12 o'clock sometimes. Miss out on uh, anything mid-afternoon and then of an evening at 5 o'clock, as I saw my darling ne- Lebanese neighbour next door, brings me food every night at 5 o'clock. Saturday and Sunday, I have to look after myself. Uh, my darling daughters um, keep me supplied with fruits. I have frozen frozen meals, which are quite tasty. So I'm trying to eat healthily, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that's, um, that's about that's it. That's perfect. Look, um, thank you so much, Len, for sharing your story with us today. Um, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and and I know you were nervous about it, um, yeah. but some of the stuff that you've just shared with us, um, uh, I can guarantee you, uh, our audience, our listeners, and our families um, will love what you've shared. So thank you very much. Thank so. you, Alan. Just for our listeners, then, um, for if if you you this this interview will go up on Apple podcasts and Spotify podcasts in the near future. Um, if you like, uh, if you, if you uh, have enjoyed the interview, please leave your reviews and ratings on the program because that ensures that the, that the an interview such as this will be heard by a, a lot wider audience. And, and it, it, the, the lessons, the stories of uh, Uncle Len today have been riveting. So thank you very much. Um, and that's the end of our program today.